Please stand for the reading of the word from Isaiah 11. Then wolves will live in peace with lambs, and leopards will lie down to us with goats. Calves, lions, and young bulls will eat together, and a little child will lead them. Cows and bears will eat together in peace. The young will lie down to us together. Lambs will eat hay as oxen do. A baby will be able to play near a cobra's hole, and a child will be able to put his hand into the nest of a poisonous snake. They will not hurt or destroy each other on all my holy mountain, because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the sea is full of water, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here. And if this is your first Sunday, you came to uh, Fall Fest last week and you said, I'm going to check it out. We are so glad you're here. Um, and those of you that are with us online, uh, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, we want to remind you of one quick thing. Uh, we are in a season of discerning the next leaders for our church. Uh, and so if you have not filled out your elder selection uh, form yet, we would really love for you to engage in that. You can do it online by uh, clicking that QR code that's also in your email. Or if you're not, you know, technology is not your thing, you, there are paper ballots at the information desk. You can pick one of those up. Those are due back uh, November 9th. Um, and so uh, we need those back this week. If you want to drop off uh, your paper not form uh, at the office, there will be a space for you to do that at our, our desk in the office this week. Uh, but we would love for everyone to be engaged in the process of discerning the men and women that God has already raised up uh, to be the leaders of our church uh, for this next season. And I want to invite you to be in prayer about that. We're grateful for all the hard work that those teams that is organizing and making sure overseeing this process has done. Um, let's, uh, let's pray before we jump into uh, the sermon today. Father God, we're grateful to be gathered here together. We're grateful for your word and the way that it challenges us and shapes us, it forms us into the, the image of your son, Jesus. Father, we're grateful for the moments in our lives where we've encountered something that we can't describe other than mystery, the mystery of your power, your love, and your mercy. And we ask that you do that again. Make yourself evident in our lives. Give us hearts and minds that seek you, search to understand you, understand and know you. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. So we've, been, uh, we've had a sick house this past week uh, at, at my home. Two out of the three of my kids have, been, have some sort of respiratory crud that is just lingering and will not go away. And there's a certain uh, amount of like irritation that occurs when people in your house are sick. I'm going to be a little transparent here for a minute. It's kind of gross. The 50th time you've blown a child's nose. It's, ugh. The snot gets so thick in the back of their throat, they vomit, and you catch that with your hands before you can grab the cup. Ugh, you know. 
That's not, that's less fun than what you'd want to do on any given week of your life, right? That's not the kind of family environment that you want to have, but it's, it's the week we've had. And you do the best you can. You do the best you can when children are up all night coughing. You, know, you do the best you can when everybody just feels a little low and wants to be a little more whiny. I think I've told this story before, but it's appropriate for the sermon. When Natalie and I, when we grew up, we had two very different styles of what happened when you were sick at your house. See, I grew up in a family of six, and we lived in a very small house, and so quarters were tight, and the best thing to do to keep everybody healthiest was to quarantine you if you got sick. And so if you got sick, you got put into your room, and the door was shut. Now, like, they would put, like, a humidifier in the room to be with you, but you are kind of on your own, right? And the, the benefit of getting sick in, in the Hughes household growing up is we had this little, like, eight-inch TV, and, and my folks would take that TV and put it in your room, and it was your TV. Nobody else could be there. You got to watch whatever channel you wanted to watch on that TV. It was kind of cool. Do you remember that feeling of, of being sick when you were a kid? Did you have that, that meal that your family made when you were sick? In my family now, we get pho, and that's, that's our sick food. We'll, we'll go get Vietnamese and bring back that broth because that's good for us. But when I was a kid growing up, for us, the sick meal was Campbell's tomato soup, or zesty if you're feeling really exciting, with a grilled cheese sandwich. That was like sick food. The, the smell and taste of Campbell's soup reminds me to this day of what it feels like when I was ill as a child. Do you know what yours was? Do you know what the smell of sick was in your family when you were growing up? To this day, if I open a can of Vicks VapoRub, that smell immediately takes me back to when I was a kid. And it took me a while to realize this, but that smell and those food, you know what, you know what it is? It was my family being hospitable to me in the way that they could. Because my family, we would quarantine. That's just the way we dealt with it. Natalie's family growing up, if you got sick, you got brought out of your bedroom and you were placed on the couch where they made a nest for you of comfort. And anytime somebody kind of came into the orbit of the living room, they would ask you questions and they would dote on you. Can I fluff your pillow? Would you like some more juice? What else can I do to help you? They would serve the sick person to make them feel loved and cared for and cherished, which is a valuable thing. My family, we would take food on a broom and just kind of push it into the room. (laughs) So guess what happens in my married, my household, the first time Natalie got sick? I took care of her the way I'm supposed to, right? Made the food, pushed it into the room. And then I went frisbee golfing with my friends because that's what, you know, that's what you can do. Quarantine, you'll feel better. <laughs> what I want us to talk about and what I want us to think about today is, is what does radicalized hospitality look like? Specifically, what does Christian radicalized hospitality look like? 
And, and this is, you can think about this. I think the most common place where you're going to imagine that this sermon's going to go is, is to neighbors. And that's where we're going to talk about. For, but it's also in your own family. How are you radically hospitable to the people that you live with? And second to that, how are you radically hospitable to yourself? How are you being kind to yourself? How are you caring for your own needs and your family's needs? but also the needs of those around you. It's my thesis today that the opposite of Christian hospitality is fear. And our culture wants you to react in fear and to be inhospitable to those around you, specifically those who don't agree with you. What we've seen in the Bible is that faith is articulated as action. That more often than not, in Scripture, when you come across the word faith, it's often a verb. It's doing something. It's being something. It's becoming something. Faith, Abraham's faith led him to leave his home and head to a place that he had never seen. It was doing something. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that faith without the love to back it up lies on the ash heap of all the other hypocritical and pointless ideas in the history of the world. Belief for belief's sake alone is petty and worthless. So when we talk about faith, we're not talking about, and this is true, kind of that laundry list of things that you want to say that's true about God. That's not the kind of faith that I'm talking about today. It's not that those statements about who God is or who Jesus is, what salvation means, how the church is supposed to function. Those things are all true, but what I want to talk about today is faith that is involved in the world. Faith that has feet and hands, a faith that, faith that creates the space for others to feel comforted and loved, to create a place for them that is home, even though it may not be their home. Which takes us to Isaiah chapter 11. Walter Brueggemann is my second favorite Isaiah scholar. My favorite Isaiah scholar is sitting at the back of this room. But what he calls, Walter Brueggemann calls um, Isaiah chapter 11, the impossible possibility of new creation. And that's what you heard Lillian read today. It's this impossible impossibility that wolves would lay down with lambs and that a baby could play next to a, a, rattlesnake, uh, a rattlesnake den. What Lillian read is a vision of the future. It's a vision of our future. And it comes from the 8th century. It comes from Isaiah. The early church, when they read Isaiah, it was often referred to as the fifth gospel. Because in Isaiah, there's so much that Isaiah is trying to describe about what, about what the Messiah will do, about what God's coming kingdom will be like. And you can't read Matthew and Mark and, and Luke without stumbling across Isaiah telling us what the vision of God's kingdom is really going to be. It's eschatological hope, which is a fancy word for the, the end. It's hope at the end, but it's real hope. And we talked last week that, that hope is different than optimism because hope allows you to jump into the game. Hope calls you to action. Hope is that the future changes have roots that exist in the present. And what Isaiah is hoping for is the coming time when death will be no more. 
And if that's true, then it's possible to imagine and live into the reality that there will be moments in our lives where we'll able to step away from the devouring competition, competition. And the old practice of the big ones eating the little ones, that that is not the future that we have in store. Isaiah ends by saying, they will neither harm nor destroy, destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And at the end of the story, it's not just the, the biological impossibility of, of wolves and lambs living together or that some animals, their carnivores, will choose to eat uh, grass so that they can live in peace with one another. This possible impossibility. But for, he moves back to this larger sphere. That's the scope of all creation. That the peace of Zion, and when Isaiah talks about Zion, he's not just talking about the temple, although he is talking about the temple. And he's not just talking about the holy city of Jerusalem, although he is talking about Jerusalem too. He's talking about the place where God's spirit rests and reigns. He's talking about the cosmos. That the whole world will have the knowledge of God. And that knowledge will change everything. And the new kingdom is going to be made up of people like us, the lion and the leopard and the wolf, and we will have redeemed appetites, no longer hungry for injury, no need to devour, no passion for domination or brutal control. It is a transformation that is both public and personal. As we learn to have hospitality for ourselves and our house, for our city, and in God's vision for the world. But Isaiah is clear. The only way, the only way that this could happen is if there is a righteous leader. Everything depends upon a ruler whose slogan is righteous, Brueggemann says. A ruler whose rule will permit children to play at a snake's hole. A new world that is safe for the vulnerable. It is a leader that is born out of the calamity of a dynasty that was failed and abandoned. At the beginning of this prophecy, Isaiah says, A shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness. He will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Out of the dead tree, out of that useless stump, out of that old idea everyone thought was tired and finished, it's the stump of David. It's that deep failure of that dynasty that would carry the hope of Israel. And it could be that he's, he's talking about um, 
Ahaz or Hezekiah, or it could be the exiled, Zerubbabel. There's so many examples of failure that Isaiah doesn't have to reach very far to find one. But it's the reality is that those old bones can't dance. And I think you may have seen that in your world at some point. Some old broken, rotten stump. Somebody cut down a beautiful tree at some point, and that's all that's left. It's not good for anything except taking up space. I tried to kill a tree once. It was in my backyard in Arkansas when we lived there. And in Arkansas, there's lots of beautiful trees, so losing one, like, not really a big cost. Here, a little different story. But it's what my neighbors called a trash tree. I didn't even know what kind of tree it was. It was just a useless tree that nobody wanted. And the leaves would fall in the fall. In the spring, it would drip this sap that made all the ground around it sticky. It was not a tree that smelled good or looked pretty. It was just trash. And so I bought a chainsaw for the first time in my life, and I cut down that tree. And I learned that you cannot put chainsaws while they're running in dirt because it immediately destroys them. And so it was tree one, chain zero. So I bought an axe. Forget technology. We'll do this the old-fashioned way. And I failed that tree. And I felt really good about myself until the next spring when about a half dozen shoots sprung out of that little stump that had sat on the bottom and I realized I had not killed the tree because the life of the tree is not in the leaves or the branches or the trunk, but in the roots. And so I went to the old timers that were around in my neighborhood and I asked them like, okay, how do I kill this stump? This stump just keeps coming back year to year. What do I do? And they said, well, you're not going to like this very much, but you're going to have to poison it. And I thought that doesn't sound right, but I'm going to trust these guys. And so I, I take a large nail and I pound it into the stump and I pour this poison that they bought into it. And I, I, I prayed for forgiveness to the ground around them for poisoning that soil. This was in my backyard. I don't know why I did that. But, um, but sure enough, the next spring, shoots came up. So I went back to those Alzheimer's and I asked the question, okay, that poison didn't work. What do I use? And they said, what kind of tree is it? I was like, I don't know. It's a trash tree. And I said, okay, well, you, you just burn it. I burn it? Yeah. So I, I dug a trench around the trunk and I filled it with diesel, again, praying forgiveness. The only thing I set on fire was my lawn. I did not burn that stump at all. Next uh, spring, sure enough, more shoots come out of the bottom of that stump, cut them all off. And I go to my next door neighbor and I said, look, I have talked to people left and right. I cannot kill this tree. You've got to help me tell me what to do. He says, you have to dig it out. And so I came back to my backyard with a shovel and a pick and this thing called uh, a, a garden... Um, stake, and it's like this eight-foot iron pole that can just crash into the ground. And I spent weekend after weekend digging up every root of that tree. Weekend after weekend. Some of them went 12, 14 feet out, and I would dig two feet down. Every root of that tree came out until I killed it. Because the life of the tree wasn't in the leaves or the branches or the trunk. The life of the tree is in the roots. And sometimes God can take something that looks as dead as a stump and bring life. Sometimes God can make old bones come to life and dance. The hope for our future of God's preferred vision isn't 
and our own ability to make sound arguments. It's in God's ability to resurrect. Genuine hospitality is a radical act in our polarized world. To recognize the stranger, to listen without reflexive defensiveness, that is truly an unusual habit. Tobias Rose Stockwell, he wrote a book called The Outrage Machine. And he wrote about this phenomenon that happened at Facebook. Facebook created algorithms and used machine learning to discover the means by which they could get users to spend the most time on their site. And they were surprised when they found out the news feed that makes users spend the longest time on their site was not one designed to uh, elicit experiences of happiness or joy, but by provoking anger and outrage. Outrage was by far the emotion that kept users coming back for longer and looking at more ads, which for Facebook resulted in more revenue, which was winning for that company. And so they have engineered your feed to make you angry and outraged. Outraged is the simultaneous experience of being smug and afraid. It is designed to keep you in a bubble of safe feelings and thoughts, never challenged by disagreement or to consider that you might be wrong. And once you realize you've been caught up into this outrage machine and you want to find a future and a focus that doesn't live in that world anymore, you want to make a change. Michael Austin comments, the first thing people usually do when they decide to reduce the outrage in their lives is to stop talking about politics altogether, or at least stop arguing with people who disagree with them. That is exactly the wrong response, he writes. We are supposed to argue about politics. We're just supposed to figure out how to do it without shouting at the top of our lungs and calling each other stupid or evil. What is desperately needed in our culture is people who are committed to radical, genuine hospitality. Have you ever found that good host? That good host in your family that makes you feel welcomed and loved, no matter what the circumstance is or what you've done, you knew you could come back and you'd be loved. Have you found that good host in a friend? When I was in California, I had a friend named Adele Gabrielson, and she, uh, I worked with her uh, on staff at the church, and she was the best host that I've ever encountered. If you ever got an invitation to one of her dinner parties, you always said yes. You canceled other plans so that you could be there. And you would show up and you'd have kind of that, that gentle offering of, 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 of bread that was baked or a bottle of wine, something to share with the, the, the party, but she had an amazing food already laid out. And amazing food that she and her husband had worked on, it was clear all day long. And her house was ready for you. And it felt like, I can't explain it, you walk into some of these places and you feel comfortable immediately. She knew how to do that for you. Not only with the aesthetic, but with the conversation. I promise you that Adele spent hours finding three or four things that you would be interested in. And she would just casually bring those things up in conversation at the party. It was things that could allow you to be funny, not for her to be funny, but so that you could make jokes. 
She was a collector of art, and so she would always kind of walk me around her living room, and we'd just talk about pieces as she showed them to me. It was something that I was fascinated in, and she knew it, and she took the time. Adele knew how to be a good host. And I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of Silicon Valley is quite neurodiverse. Sometimes it's a challenge. But she knew how to love every person that came, to honor who they were, to listen to them. She taught us how to be hospitable to one another. Clearly the greatest host is Jesus. Throughout the story of each gospel, Jesus is often invited to homes and invited to eat at places, but it it doesn't matter where Jesus sits. Wherever he sits, he becomes oriented as the host of the table. He could be invited by Pharisees and teachers of the law who don't even bother to wash his feet and to show that kind of hospitality, but he is the host once he arrives. He could be invited by somebody like a tax collector or somebody that's unclean, a, a, a sinner in their job like Zacchaeus. And he arrives to Zacchaeus' house, and he becomes the host of that table, offering grace to the man that he would never have expected. Jesus makes space for everyone. So what does radical hospitality look like for us? What does it look like for you? I think the clearest example of that at our church is grace and freedom. If you've never been to grace or freedom, there are two satellite churches that meet on Wednesday nights. And they meet in neighborhoods that, whose population is, is pretty different than the population in this room in terms of socioeconomic status. But somehow in those places, when Jesus arrives and becomes the host of the table, there's a miracle that occurs. And this is my favorite metric that I've, I've encountered in church work ever in my entire life. The metrics of church work is usually nickels and noses. How many people are coming on Sunday? How much offering are we making? This is the best metric I've ever heard. The metric is unlikely friendships. When you go to grace and you go to freedom, and I want you to go and check it out. I want you not just to show up for one week, but show up for three or four weeks in a row so you can begin to see what it's really like. But when you show up there, the metric to determine your success is how many unlikely friendships have you found? People that you would never encounter in the course of your week that you find there, and they become more than just a ministry opportunity. They become a brother and a sister. The same thing can happen in this room. I think it's just a little more difficult to find, but there are these unlikely friendships that happen in church all the time. It's brothers and sisters who do not allow differences to divide. It's brothers and sisters who hold the courage to bear witness to what's different between them, but at the same time acknowledge that God is greater. God transcends all those things. It's brothers and sisters that have the courage to be present in the place that you are. And that you bring with you the spirit of the greatest host of all, who reorients every table to love.
Would you please stand for our benediction? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. They're available for you now if you'd like to pray with them. Or if it's a conversation that you need to have later this week, they'd be happy to have a cup of coffee with you. This week, Highland, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be... The word just slipped out of my mind. It's the title of the series, Radicalized. That was weird. <laughs> that killed some rhythm. All right. Um, I want to challenge you to be radicalized in your ability to show hospitality to others. It takes genuine courage to overcome the difference that you know exists between you and someone else. Find that courage in God and let the hospitality of the spirit that is poured out in you conquer fear. May you be filled with God's love. May you shine brightly to this city. Go in peace.